Good morning. Good morning. All right. Before we get into the sermon, I do want us to take some time to pray for the peoples. Um, I would ask that everybody would continue in their prayers for the family. Um, and don't just offer your prayers. Mourn. Uh, you know, Jesus, he doesn't tell you uh, when he talks about mourning, he doesn't say, oh, try to think of an encouraging Bible verse, try to say something comforting. No, he says, mourn with those who mourn. Right? There's no, the, the initial response should never be rationalizing. Uh, no, what we need to do is mourn with those who mourn. All right, it's a tragic situation, and we'll pray for the Peeble family and the loss of their son, uh, and for the friends, the loss of a friend, their friend Andrew. So let's pray before we get into the sermon. Our Heavenly Father, suffering, pain, tragedy is a reality that every person on earth faces Lord, in suffering and pain, there is often frustration, there is often anger, confusion. Lord, at this time, we know that we ought to mourn with the Peeble family. We pray that they would be able to mourn and grieve as they ought. And there's going to be a long time of pain, and quite frankly, that pain will never go away at least not until you bring all things to you. And Lord, we pray when in time that you would give them comfort. But at this time, may we mourn with those who mourn. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we were in John, we just ended John chapter 4, and this week we're starting in John chapter 5, but before we get to John chapter 5, I want to give a quick little recap. So last time we saw that Jesus, he healed an official son, right? That official being probably a member of Herod Antipas's court, all right? So Herod being that, one could say, enemy, uh, the one who imprisoned John the Baptist, the one who had John the Baptist killed. And so Jesus, he heals this official's son. And as we saw in that text, it didn't seem like the official trusted in the sign. He didn't need a spectacle. He trusted Jesus' word when Jesus said, go and your son will live. Now this week in John chapter 5, we see something a little bit different with a paralyzed man. He may have faith and trust, but where is it placed at first? So John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5 say this, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethsaida, or Bestha, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, just some observations about this verse. Jesus, he goes back down to Jerusalem. And as you see in the Gospel of John, there's a lot of back and forth. He goes down to Jerusalem. He goes back up to Galilee. He goes back down to Jerusalem. And so he comes back down to Jerusalem during a feast. Now, it's not exactly clear what feast was going on. But just know that during times of feast, during times of celebration, there would have been a lot of foot traffic 
in Jerusalem. And so Jesus, he decides to show up at this pool, and there is a lot of foot traffic. As the text says, there are a multitude of blind, lame, and paralyzed people. Now, I want you to think about how these people would have been viewed in their culture in their time. They would have been viewed as unclean. They would have thought that these people had committed some sin. They would have thought that their parents may have committed a sin that led to their state, being sick, being blind, whatever it may be. They thought that they were in their position because of someone's sin, whether it be theirs or their parents. And so here we see that there is a paralyzed man. But before we get to that man, you may ask, where in the world is verse 4? As you can see in that text, I have John 1 through 5, but verse 4 is missing. Where in the world, word, world, word, where in the world is verse 4? Now, some people, if you have the old King James Version, you probably have verse 4 in there. And it may concern you. You may be like, uh-oh, did somebody take away from God's word? What's going on? Well, here's a quick lesson on textual criticism for you. It's something that I had to study in college. Now, that term there, textual criticism, might alarm you, all right? Uh, it, it's not a class focused on criticizing Scripture. That's not the focus of the class. The, the point of the class is to answer the question, why do we have the text we have? Why is this the way it is? Why do we have the verses as they are? Why do we have the books as they are? How did they come about? It also answers the question, is the text reliable? Short answer, yes. All right? Short answer, yes. Most serious biblical scholars would say, yes, absolutely, it is reliable. Nonetheless, why is verse 4 here missing? Long story short, Verse 4 is only found in later manuscripts, manuscripts being copies of the New Testament. It's only found in later manuscripts, not found in the earlier manuscripts. Thus, they determined, okay, it probably wasn't part of the original since it's only found in later copies of the text. Now, all right, when people hear this, they say, "Uh uh-oh, is Scripture unreliable? Is it inconsistent? Is this an inconsistency? Should I trust it? Not so fast, all right? Here's some facts about the New Testament's reliability. There are over 5,800 partial or full Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, some dating within 100 years of when Jesus was on earth, along with 10,000 Latin manuscripts. And the manuscripts in the New Testament have over a 99% accuracy rate, meaning it wasn't like the game of telephone. They, they, they've, the scholars have compared the manuscripts and over 99% of it lines up, meaning it's exactly as it should be. There's not uh, many inconsistencies. Now, the quote-unquote inconsistencies mostly consist of punctuation or spelling, with the exceptions of verse 4 here and the exception of the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Now, the accuracy of The New Testament makes a lot of sense considering how they copied and dispersed the text, right? They would have, see, they would have rooms full of scribes, maybe like 20 scribes in a room. They would have a copy of the manuscript and then they would copy it. It wasn't just done by ear. It wasn't a game of telephone. It wasn't passed orally down through generations. No, they copied the text, which is why over 99% of it lines up. So I don't think there's any reason to be concerned about verse 4 Uh, not being there. 
And oh yeah, the New Testament's reliability is unmatched. You want to know the next closest ancient historical work? Homer's Iliad only has 643 manuscripts as compared to the New Testament that has over 5,800 Greek and 10,000 Latin. Right, so the New Testament's reliability is unmatched. Not even Shakespeare comes close. Shakespeare's less than Homer's Iliad, and uh, we're not even too sure if it's exactly as he wrote it, but we're more sure about the New Testament because there's a whole lot more manuscripts when it comes to the New Testament. So, a quick lesson on textual criticism. Verse 4, missing is nothing to be concerned about, not to mention the quote-unquote inconsistencies don't affect doctrine. None of the uh, additions of these verses that might not appear in our Bible, they don't affect how we understand Jesus. They don't affect who Jesus was. They don't affect who Jesus is. And they don't affect what Jesus accomplished. All right, so I bring this up because maybe you've never heard of this before. Maybe you've never heard of the term textual criticism. Maybe you've never considered why sometimes verses are missing. But truly, it's nothing to be concerned about. It doesn't affect our faith in Jesus. Quite frankly, there's not a single historical text that is as well attested to as our New Testament. That being said, let's move on to what really matters. Look at verses 3 and 5 again. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. Whether that's from birth and on, or whether that's 38 years, it doesn't really matter. That's a long time. Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the suffering? Can you imagine what's going on in this man's mind? Basically, people in society are telling you, oh, God doesn't, you know, he doesn't show his favor to you. You must have done something wrong. Your parents must have done something wrong. That's why you are the way you are. So imagine this man's position. Imagine how much he is suffering. Now, the text doesn't exactly reveal yet why all these crippled people are here. We'll get to that in a second, but look at verse 6. John chapter 5, verse 6 says this, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? See, without the man telling him, without this uh, invalid telling him what has gone on in his life, Without him telling Jesus, oh, here's how I've been suffering, Jesus. It's been so long, Jesus. You don't understand. No, Jesus understands. He looks at the man and he knows how long he has been there. He knows how long he has been suffering. And Jesus knows how long you have been suffering. It's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us uh, to grasp that Jesus understands sometimes. We're so far separated by years uh, between Jesus being on earth. It's hard for us to get that sometimes, but he does. Quite frankly, Jesus knows suffering more than we do. I absolutely believe that. That's not to invalidate your suffering. That's to show you that he understands what it means to suffer. And so he knows this man's situation. But let me ask you a question. Where have you looked for healing? And what kind of healing have you looked for? Look at how the man responds in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. 
Apparently, this multitude, they're gathered around this pool because they think that when it's stirred up, if they, if they just make it to the water, they would be healed. Can you imagine this man just sitting around the pool and he's, he doesn't have his, work, his legs working and he tries to crawl to the pool, but then somebody pushes him out of the way so that they can make it to the pool? Perhaps there's a reason there's a multitude of people around this pool. Because they think to themselves, maybe this time. Maybe I just, I just make it to the waters, I will be healed. But it doesn't work. Maybe like this man, you've joined the crowd. Society says, this is where you find healing. If you just be true to yourself, if you just rely on what society tells you to rely on, you're going to find healing, you're going to find comfort, you're going to find peace. But people look for healing in the wrong places. Jesus responds in verses 8 through the first half of 9. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once this man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. I think this is Jesus telling him, look, stop looking to the pool. Stop looking at all the ways that you think you can be healed. Stop looking to drugs. Stop looking to alcohol. Stop looking to unhealthy relationships. Look to me. You're looking in the wrong place. You're putting your faith, you're putting your trust in the wrong thing. And notice how this man differs from the official. This man, he didn't immediately put his faith and trust in Jesus, but Jesus heals him. Jesus heals him. Even while we're looking at the wrong things. Even while we're looking in all the wrong places, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, that's grace. This man didn't do anything to deserve the healing that Jesus gave him. We most certainly, those who are Christians, we didn't do anything to deserve the spiritual healing that we find in Christ. We didn't do anything to deserve the Spirit entering our life and sanctifying us. We didn't do anything to deserve any of that. Verses 9 through 13, the second half of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man that said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now there's an issue with the Sabbath here. Hold on to that next week. We're going to address that next week. There's an issue. The the Pharisees, the Jews, they have an issue with Jesus healing on the Sabbath. They have an issue with this man being healed on the Sabbath. So hold on to that next week. We're going to address that later. But what I want to focus on is there's a crowd of sick people. Jesus heals this one man, and he just dips out of there. What's going on, Jesus? Why not heal the rest of them? All right? He's kind of like Batman throwing down some smoke screens or something. And he's out, right? Well, 
As verse 13 says, Jesus, he leaves because the crowd is there. He's concerned about the crowd. Now, maybe this is for a few reasons. Maybe he left because, well, think about this. He heals this one man. They see this happen. What would they do? Well, they would clamor for him. This multitude of people, who, who knows how many people, maybe hundreds of people would clamor for him trying to be healed. They would see, hey, I could be healed. They would focus on the sign, as we kind of talked about last week. But physical healing, even in this text, is not Jesus' main goal or Jesus' main purpose. That may be hard to hear, but that is not Jesus' main purpose. I understand there are people suffering. I understand there are people in this auditorium suffering with pain. I know. Now, I might not be able to relate to that, but I know you are suffering. This is hard to hear. But Jesus' main purpose was not to give you physical healing. So let's answer that in verse 14. What is Jesus' main purpose? Afterward, Jesus found him. So Jesus, he left and he comes back and he finds this man. He found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now in this text, when Jesus tells this man to sin no more, I do not think Jesus is saying, all right, now you can go on and you can no longer sin by your own effort. I don't think that's what Jesus is telling him because we know that not to be true. We can't sin no more by our own effort. We know this. So I think Jesus is trying to get this man to see what he really needs. Jesus healed this man. He healed this man who's been suffering for 38 years, but he wants him to see the spiritual healing he desperately needs. He was saved from his physical suffering, but he needs to be saved from his sin. Because what's physical healing without spiritual healing? We all have sinned. We all have done wrong against God. We all need spiritual healing. Pay close attention to the second half of verse 14. It's pretty important. He says, See you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. In the gospel, there is good news. That's what the gospel means. There is grace. There is immense grace unmerited grace. We didn't do anything to deserve the the forgiveness Jesus provides. But on the other hand, there's a warning. There is a warning for those who do not receive His grace. Something worse may happen. Now, I don't think Jesus is referring to some physical impairment. Uh, Very little could be worse than 38 years paralyzed. So look at the context. We'll skip ahead a little bit. Verses 28 and 29 of chapter 5. What could be worse? Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, one quick thing I want to clarify here. When it says those who have done good, uh, that's a participle there, and it's probably not translated too well. It could be translated as those who are doing good to the resurrection of life and those who are doing evil, those who are practicing evil to the resurrection of judgment. And we know that doing good 
When we are a Christian, we're enabled by Christ to practice to do good. That's for those who are in Christ. But on the flip side, those who have not received Christ, those who have not put their faith in Christ, those who have not received that spiritual life in Christ, those who have not been born again of the Spirit, practicing evil. And they'll be raised to a resurrection of judgment. There's a lot of good news in the gospel. We've received grace unmerited, but on the flip side, just just receiving what Jesus has offered us, if you don't, there's a resurrection of judgment. So I ask you, do you want to be healed? What kind of healing have you been looking for? Where have you been looking for healing? If you have, look to Jesus for the healing that really matters. You can come as we stand and sing.